Our scripture reading this morning is Luke chapter 16, verses 1 through 18. That reading may be found in the Pew Bible on page 875. He also said to the disciples, There was a rich man who had a manager, and charges were brought to him that this man was wasting his possessions. And he called him and said to him, What is this that I hear about you? Turn in the account of your management, for you can no longer be manager. And the manager said to himself, What shall I do, since my master is taking the management away from me? I am not strong enough to dig, and I am ashamed to beg. I have decided what to do so that when I am removed from management, people may receive me into their houses. So, summoning up his master's debtors one by one, he said to the first, How much do you owe my master? He said, A hundred measures of oil. He said to him, Take your bill and sit down quickly and write fifty. Then he said to another, And how much do you owe? He said, a hundred measures of wheat. He said to him, take your bill and write 80. The master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. For the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. And I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. One who is faithful in very little is also faithful in much, and one who is dishonest in a very little is also dishonest in much. If you then have not been faithful in unrighteous wealth, who will entrust you to the true riches? And if you have not been faithful in which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? No servant can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. The Pharisees, who were lovers of money, heard all of these things, and they ridiculed him. And he said to him, You are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. For what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. The law and the prophets were until John. Since then, the good news of the kingdom of God is preached, and everyone forces his way into it. But it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one dot of the law to become void. Everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery, and he who marries a woman divorced from her husband, commits adultery. Good morning, church. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful to gather this morning and we're eager to hear the preaching of your word. We thank you that you use it to convict us and to point us to the Lord Jesus Christ 
and to orient our hearts to your saving work in our lives. And you hold out a vision for us in your word in this text of eternal dwellings that are ours through faith in Christ. And I pray for my friends that you'd help them to see Jesus and to trust him and to love him as they hear your word this morning. So be with us and move in the power of your spirit. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Present sacrifice for future gain. That's a concept I trust you're familiar with. Immediate denial for the sake of something better down the road. Short-term deprivation in order to have long-term benefit. You get that. Set aside money for retirement. Discipline yourself, maybe to practice guitar. Avoid all the snacks and run on the treadmill. Some of you resolved to do that for the first week or two of January, and then yesterday you ate six cookies at the men's retreat. (laughs) I saw you. (laughs) Workouts, disciplined practice routines, studying, whether in athletics or music or education. It's a current effort to work hard and do something difficult because there's a future reward. There's something out there in the future that you treasure, that you long for, that you want, and you want to be able to enjoy. No pain, no gain, right? You want a new car, you desire to be healthy and fit, you long to play your instrument well. These are the things you're excited about as you imagine the future you. Many of you are currently saving up for a house. You have an account that you're putting money into with the hopes that one day you can own your own home. You've looked at your salary, you know your expenses, and you're, you're trying to tighten up the budget so you can save as much as possible, because the more you squirrel away now, the sooner you'll have that home. And it wouldn't hurt if the market dropped a little bit. I can remember when we were saving for a house, I was doing everything I could to just tuck money away. I was frugal. I was creative. I talked to Shannon and we strategized together. And I could imagine what it would be like to have my own house. I I could picture having my own garage. I could picture the kids playing in the yard with our trees and maybe gardens. I spent less time thinking about what I would do when the boiler began to leak. And now I know, you call Eric Rumbaugh. (laughs) He's very helpful. But I could dream easily about owning my own home because it was something I I treasured, something I really wanted and longed for. I wanted us to have our own place. And I think you can relate to this, whether you are a current homeowner or somebody who hopes to have a home sometime soon. By by instinct, you steward resources this way. You employ self-denial now, in order to get future gain. It, it kind of comes as second nature to us. But I want to ask you this morning about your soul. How can you steward your wealth and your property for the benefit of your soul? What does faith in Jesus Christ look like as it relates to your money and your possessions? Would an eternal perspective change your approach to spending and and purchasing and making investments? Are you treasuring God and serving him supremely? And what does it look like for you to do so? Our passage today from Luke 16 that Betsy read is going to help us understand these things. So take a look at it 
with me. We heard the verses read in the scripture reading. The first eight verses constitute another parable. We're still in the same section of teaching that we've been in since chapter 9, verse 52. Jesus has set his face to go to Jerusalem, and he's instructing his disciples and the crowds concerning the cost of discipleship and what it means to truly follow him and what true faith looks like. And he's confronting all along the way the unbelief and the hypocrisy of the Pharisees, Israel's religious leaders. Verse 1 states that Jesus told this parable to the disciples. But, but I don't think this marks a significant shift in the audience. Jesus has been teaching his disciples and speaking to the crowds throughout this section of Luke, with the Pharisees always present, either in the foreground or at least in the background. And as we'll see in verse 14, they're here in the audience listening to this parable. In the first eight verses, Jesus tells a parable about a rich man and his manager. The rich man's referred to as the master in verses 3 and 5 and 8. And the manager is a steward tasked with overseeing the master's belongings. Well, the manager acts unrighteously and he wastes the possessions. He squanders the master's possessions. The word waste at the end of verse 1, do you see that? That's the same word you heard back last week in chapter 15, verse 13, when the prodigal son, quote, gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country, and there he squandered his property in reckless living. Really, the son squandered his father's property, the inheritance, in reckless living. Here in chapter 16, the unrighteous manager squanders his master's property. He wastes it. And the master hears charges concerning this, and as a result, he lets the unrighteous manager go. He fires him. And he tells him to turn in the account of his management. He demands a a final audit, a final reckoning of the books. And the manager says, Oh no, what am I going to do? I'm too soft-handed for labor, too weak to dig, too proud to beg, what should I do? Aha, verse 4, I know I'll do something shrewd now so that people may receive me into their houses later. You see? He'll act now while still a manager to ensure his provision and safety later after his employment is over. Now, what he does in verses 5 through 7 is a matter of much debate. One option is that he acted like a rascal and simply lessened the debt unrighteously. It was dishonest for him to do, but he didn't care because he's getting fired anyway. And so he cheated his way into the good graces of the master's debtors, forgiving debts one by one, presumably with more debtors than just two. And second option is that he did not act unrighteously toward the master, but rather gave up his commission, gave up his own profit to lower the debts. In this view, he took the hit himself. He gave up the immediate commission that he had every right to in order to ingratiate himself to others for the future. He gave up a short-term gain in order to procure long-term prosperity and security. And I prefer this second view, the the commission approach, as commentators call it. They're, they're very creative. 
uh, in naming these things. I prefer the commission approach for a few reasons. One, I think when the managers called the unrighteous manager in verse 8, or the dishonest manager, I think that it's referring back to verse 1. The unrighteous and dishonest act was the initial squandering of the property. Number two, this view enables us to see strong links between the parable here in chapter 16 and the parable we just studied last week, the parable of the prodigal son. Both characters, the lost son and the shrewd manager, had stewardship of another's possessions and squandered them. And when both were confronted with the mess they had made, they had an aha moment. The lost son, if you remember, came to his senses, and the manager here acted in a commendable way. Which leads me to the third reason. In verse 8, the master commends the manager. He commends him. He praises him. And by extension, by implication, Jesus praises him. Jesus commends him. The parable, after all, is an illustration of faith. So I commend, pun intended, this commission approach to you. I think it makes the best sense of the overall text in this passage. And so, as I mentioned in verse 8, the master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewd, shrewdness, his prudence, his, his wise action. Now, what was so shrewd about the manager's maneuvers with the oil and, and wheat and whatever other commodities he leveraged? What was so shrewd? Well, he took swift action with the current stewardship that he was in charge of for the sake of future safety and future security. He sacrificed his own commission, losing immediate income, in order to gain a reception into people's houses in the future. He made a short-term sacrifice for a long-term gain. And he made the master look good because the debts were lowered. And he gained favor with others who could give him help in the future. Very shrewd. Very shrewd. And the commendation of verse 8 is grounded in the fact, you can look in verse 8, grounded in the fact that the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. In other words, worldly people, people don't, who don't have faith, do a better job at being shrewd than God's people do. The sons of this age, I think that's a better translation than the sons of this world, the, the sons of this age act shrewdly in this life. They know how to sacrifice for the future when they're only thinking about this age. How much more should we, the sons of light, who are living for eternity by faith, act shrewdly? And this line of thinking from Jesus gives way to his statement in verse 9. Here's the upshot of the parable. And I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. What is Jesus saying? He's saying that faith looks like shrewd management. So to act in faith is to make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth. This, this unrighteous wealth is simply worldly wealth. It's, it's the wealth of this age. There's nothing inherently evil about it. It's referring to earthly, worldly money and possessions. So to act in faith is to steward your money and your possessions here on earth with eternity in view, so as to be received, the text says, into eternal dwellings. 
You're to act shrewdly like the manager in the parable, but with an eternal perspective as a son of light. This means recognizing that a day of reckoning is fast approaching, a day of turning in your account to the manager, or to the master, I should say. Soon you will give an account for how you have stewarded your wealth and your possessions here on earth, in this life. And if you make friends by faith, then you will be received and welcomed into eternal safety and security. Well, how do you make friends by means of worldly wealth? You leverage your money and your possessions so as to love God by loving and serving his people. That's how. You express your faith in Jesus Christ by sacrificially and generously helping other sons of light. Thus you have a cloud of witnesses who are eager to receive you into the eternal dwellings. Really, you have God himself receiving you into his eternal dwelling and a cloud of witnesses celebrating it. Now, does this mean that you earn your way into God's presence? You earn your way into God's house by acting shrewdly? Does your strategic use of money and possessions merit favor before God? No. No, a a thousand times, no. Jesus is illustrating faith. This is what faith looks like. This is a call to act in faith as a true child of light. Saving faith acts shrewdly. It's what it does. If you're trusting in Jesus Christ by faith alone, you will shrewdly prepare for the coming judgment, which has immediate implications on how you use your money and how you use your possessions. If you say you're trusting Jesus for salvation, but you're not stewarding your wealth shrewdly, then your faith is suspect. Your soul's in danger. You may be only exercising devil faith, a faith that doesn't act. So it's critical to know what shrewd management is, don't you think? What is shrewd management? Jesus explains it in verses 10, 11, and 12. Here he begins to apply the parable and and to teach about true faith. And he says that shrewd management is being faithful with the little that you've been given in this life. It's faithfully stewarding your worldly wealth, knowing that the true riches of eternal life await you in the age to come. It's faithfully stewarding what belongs, uh, the belongings of another, namely your master in heaven. It's stewarding those, knowing that he will generously give you a home in heaven, as your own. Shrewd management is a faith-filled, faith-fueled approach to your stewardship of money and possessions. Are you using them to love your neighbor as yourself? Are you generous toward your brothers and sisters in Christ? Are you leveraging money and possessions for the good of the church, Christ's dear bride? Are you loving the Lord your God by sacrificing your wealth for his people? Are you throwing a banquet, to use Luke 14 language, for those who can't repay you, knowing that you'll be repaid at the resurrection of the just? And it's critical to notice, verse 12, that the worldly wealth you possess has been entrusted to you by another. It's God's. And he's the master. He owns it all. And he's entrusted it to you. You're just a steward. You're just a steward. And so the question becomes, 
Who is your master? Is wealth your master? Do you treasure money and possessions? Are you enslaved to wealth? Jesus says it very plainly in verse 13. No servant can serve two masters. He'll either hate the one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to the one and he'll despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. So what are you devoted to? What do you love? Or to put it in terms of faith, what are you trusting? What are you hoping in? What do you believe will satisfy you? Is it God and all his glory and all his greatness? Or is it money? Which frankly can promise quite a lot in this life. The faith that secures your eternal dwelling looks like serving God as your master by stewarding your wealth in light of the coming judgment. Did you catch what verse 9 said about wealth? What does verse 9 say about money? It fails. Do you see it? And I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth so that when it fails, they may receive you into eternal dwellings. Money, wealth, it fails. When does it fail? At the judgment. When your stewardship comes to an end. When it's time to turn in the account of your management. And if you've been serving money, if you've been loving money, if you've been devoted to accumulating wealth and possessions, then you'll have nothing at the judgment. Except guilt. You won't have the righteousness required by God, and you will not enjoy an entrance into his eternal dwellings. He won't receive you. Rather, you'll perish in your sins, and you'll be exiled from God forever. You'll end up in hell with no money and no possessions and no hope and no life. To serve money and to serve possessions is to hate God. And it's a rank display of unbelief, which is exactly what we see in verses 14 through 18. Here in these verses, once again, we have the Pharisees listening to Jesus and then ridiculing him, scoffing at him, sneering at him, mocking Jesus with disdain. They didn't like what he taught, so they derided him. And why? Why did they deride him? Because they were lovers of money. See that in verse 14? Should jump right off the page at you. No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. The Pharisees, verse 14, were lovers of money. (laughs) That should just leap off the page at you. They loved it. They loved money. They were devoted to it. Which means... The Pharisees were God-haters. They despised God. What? Luke is making this comment about the Pharisees. Come on, Luke. These scrupulous religious leaders, these esteemed men who prayed and fasted and taught God's law, these leaders of God's people, Israel, hating God? Really? Yeah. Yeah, really. 
And it was made manifest in that they hated and they despised Jesus. They're ridiculing him right here in verse 14. And he's God in the flesh. He's the divine Messiah. And they scoff at him. So Jesus confronts their unbelief. First, he exposes it. If faith looks like stewarding your wealth before God with an eternal perspective, then loving money is unbelief. It's being enamored with this age and devoted to worldly wealth, which is the antithesis of faith. So Jesus exposes their unbelief. He says, you make a religious show for people, but you're far from God. You justify yourselves before men. You seek to appear righteous before others. You trust in yourselves and your outward show of piety, but God knows your hearts. He knows the wickedness of your hearts. Everything you're exalting among men, self-righteousness, religious hypocrisy, the love of money, a devotion to this age, they're all an abomination in God's sight. They're detestable to him. That's the unbelief of the Pharisees. Worldly self-exaltation, money-loving self-exaltation, and Jesus just lays them bare. Lays them bare. And then he confronts their refusal to obey the gospel. He confronts their wicked use of the law, their self-serving use of the law. And he asserts what true fulfillment, true law fulfillment looks like. First, he declares that the gospel is being preached, as was the design. The law and the prophets, he says, were until John. They contained the promise of Christ. The law and the prophets pointed forward to the person and the work of Messiah. Jesus and his gospel were the fulfillment of the law. He was the promised one. When John the Baptist came, he ushered in that fulfillment. This is how Luke presents him in chapter 3. He came fulfilling the words of Isaiah the prophet, as one crying in the wilderness, as one preparing the way of the Lord. And he preached the gospel, John did. He preached good news to the people in anticipation of Jesus Christ. And then he baptized the Lord Jesus who began his public ministry in Luke chapter 4 when he said, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. So since John, the good news of the kingdom is preached. In other words, the gospel era has dawned. Christ is here. The kingdom is here. God's reign in and through Jesus has begun. With the arrival of Christ, the doors of God's kingdom have been flung wide open. Entrance to God's kingdom is through Christ, and Christ is here. He came to fulfill the law in all righteousness. Jesus obeyed the law, doing what it says at every turn. He was holy. He was the pure, unblemished, spotless Lamb of God. He, he acted in righteousness, keeping and upholding the law without any sin, without one act of law-breaking. And then he willingly went to the cross as an atoning sacrifice to die in the place of sinners. In his death, he was punished for the sins of his people, and he, he bore God's wrath on their behalf. All the sins of his people were imputed to him. All your sins, brother and sister, were imputed to Jesus. They were placed upon him and he suffered and he died on the cross in your place. He was delivered up for your trespasses. And then he was raised for your justification. And what is justification? 
It's the crediting of Christ's righteousness to your account. It's God's declaration that you're righteous because of your faith union with Jesus Christ. Your union with Jesus by faith alone. And it's not based on anything that you do. For we hold, Paul says in Romans 3.28, that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. So the call is to come to Jesus by faith alone. That's the gospel call. The invitation is to enter the kingdom of God through faith in Jesus Christ, through his gospel. And through his gospel, he offers entrance to anyone who would believe. But the Pharisees refuse to enter. They're uncaring and uninterested in the true things of God. They're unbelieving. They don't believe the law and the prophets, and they don't believe the gospel. So they don't enter. They don't enter. Israel's religious leaders stay outside of God's kingdom, mired in unbelief. But how about those who believe? What about those who have faith in Jesus? They enter. They enter, don't they? They force their way into the kingdom. Do you see that at the end of verse 16? This is how faith is characterized and described. It's active. Faith is aggressive. It crowds in. Nothing will get in its way. Matthew eleven twelve, a parallel passage, even says that the kingdom is taken violently. There's a determination to accept Christ's invitation and to enter his kingdom at all costs. That's what faith looks like. That's what faith does. This is why Paul says in 1 Timothy 6.12 to fight the good fight of faith and to take hold of eternal life. Or let's put it in terms of what Luke has said recently as we've studied the last few chapters. Faith strives to enter through the narrow door. Luke 13.24 or Luke 14. Faith comes to Jesus and hates his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters and yes, even one's own life. To believe looks like bearing your own cross and coming after Jesus. That's what it looks like. Exercising faith means you renounce all that you have. Without this kind of faith, Jesus says throughout Luke 14, without this kind of faith, you cannot be my disciple, Jesus says. This kind of faith is seen when you aggressively and violently force your way into the kingdom by doing things like renouncing all that you have. Or Luke 16, 1 through 13, that we just talked about. The faith that secures your eternal dwelling will always look like stewarding your wealth in order to shrewdly prepare for the coming judgment. And your faithful stewardship should be aggressive, it should be deliberate and energetic. That's what saving faith looks like. And the Pharisees didn't have it. They were unbelieving. And an outworking of that unbelief was a loosening of God's law. It's actually quite ironic. The leaders who postured as fastidious law keepers really were lackadaisical in their approach to God's law. Why? Because it didn't involve their hearts. Remember, God knows the heart. The Pharisees honor God with their lips, but their hearts are far from him. So they relaxed God's law. They made it void. 
Jesus said so much to the Pharisees in Matthew 15, 6. For the sake of your tradition, he said, you have made void the word of God. So Jesus continues to confront them in verse 17 by saying that it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one dot of the law to become void. The law cannot be made void, despite the Pharisees' unbelieving efforts. Instead, they'll be judged as lawbreakers, and the law will stand unharmed by their unbelief. In fact, the one who came in fulfillment of the law, the one to whom every little dot pointed, Jesus, will establish the law, and he'll uphold the law. He said so much on the ser- in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew five seventeen. Jesus said, don't think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I haven't come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. That's why he also says in the Sermon on the Mount, you've heard that it was said. You've heard that it was said. He's correcting the Pharisees who were mishandling the law, and he's upholding the heart of God's law. And that's what we have here in verse 18, the final verse of our passage. Jesus is upholding the law. He's establishing the law. And divorce is given as an example, as a representative sample of God's law that the Pharisees were making void with their loose interpretations. The Pharisees were guilty of setting aside and nullifying God's law as it pertained to divorce. They allowed the indecency clause of Deuteronomy 24.1 to allow divorce of all kinds and for all kinds of reasons. By Jesus' day, the Pharisees were very lenient on divorce. Certificates of divorce could be written for reasons that went far beyond God's law. And this is why in Matthew 19.7, the Pharisees asked Jesus, why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? They're, they're resisting Jesus' teaching. And they're referring back to Deuteronomy 24. So the statement about divorce and adultery in Luke 16.18 is Jesus' way of reaffirming that the law cannot be made void. In his authoritative teaching, he's establishing and upholding the law. He makes plain that God never planned in the law for a husband and a wife to divorce. The certificate of divorce in Deuteronomy 24 was written by Moses only because of hardness of heart, because of unbelief. And Jesus says to the Pharisees in Matthew 19.8 that it was written because of their hardness of heart. Their leniency on divorce was just further evidence of godless unbelief. Now, I know this verse could be very unsettling to some because it doesn't seem to give any allowance for divorce or remarriage. And I know many of you here have been divorced. And some are divorced and remarried. So I need to say something about this. We can't take much time on it this morning. This verse actually doesn't play a a central role to our overall passage. But let me suffice it to say that there are several passages like this one, including Mark chapter 10, Matthew 5, Matthew 9. Of course, Paul addresses divorce and remarriage also in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Jesus' statement in Mark 10 is similar to the one we have here in Luke 16, 18. But the two statements that Jesus makes in Matthew have exception clauses that seem to permit divorce and remarriage in the case of sexual immorality. Likewise, 1 Corinthians 7, there Paul seems to permit divorce and presumably remarriage on the basis of abandonment or desertion. 
And for this reason, the elders at CMC, in keeping with statements like the Westminster Confession of Faith, allow for divorce and remarriage in cases of sexual, sexual immorality or desertion. So divorce on the grounds of sexual immorality or desertion, followed by remarriage, shouldn't be condemned as sin. Well, that's Luke 16, verses 1 through 18. Take a deep breath. I'm going to. We've looked at the parable of the shrewd manager. It's an illustration of saving faith. And we've examined Jesus' teaching on saving faith as he applied the parable. And then we saw how Jesus confronted the damning unbelief of the Pharisees who loved money. Now, how can you make use of these scriptures? Well, first, let me say to you that faith in Jesus Christ, the the kind of faith that enters the kingdom, is active. It's a working through love kind of faith, Galatians 5, 6. It's the kind of faith you must exercise in order to force your way into God's kingdom. It's the kind of faith that secures your eternal dwelling. Believing the gospel of Jesus Christ means taking the kingdom by force. And taking the kingdom by force means believing the gospel. It's entering the kingdom at all costs. It's doing whatever it takes to lay hold of Christ. It's asking, intent on receiving. It's seeking, intent on finding. It's knocking, intent that it will be opened to you. So, please listen to me this morning if you're an unbeliever here. Someone who's yet outside of Christ. Somebody who's yet a Christian. Listen, I want to say something very simple to you this morning. Come to Jesus. Come to Jesus. Come to him. He invites you to come. He says, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. From me, For I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. He says, come to me. He also says, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. See, coming to Jesus is believing in Jesus. And I'm just saying to you, accept his invitation. Go to him actively, by faith. Believe his gospel. He died for sinners just like you. Jesus is God's sole provision for your sin. He's the the only one who can give you eternal life. Because he became an offering for sin, and he died and was buried, and then was raised from the dead as the King of kings and the Lord of lords. He can give you life, life everlasting. So come to him by faith. There is a judgment coming. There is a time of final accounting, and it's fast approaching. And if you serve the idol of money and prove to be one who despises God, he will judge you. If you're unrighteous and selfish with your wealth, loving money and loving possessions and hoping in them for your security, it will all fail. Your money and your possessions will fail you. You'll be marked as someone who despised Christ's church and cherished your own wealth and and you'll die in your sin. 
The call to faith in Jesus Christ is a call to serve God only. So I'll say it again. Come to Jesus Christ by faith. Come to him by faith alone. Repent of the love of money. Those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, Paul writes in 1 Timothy 6. Those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Money will pass away. The world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. Come to Jesus. As for my brothers and sisters, let me ask you this. How can you persevere in faith for the good of your soul? What will it look like for you to fight the good fight of faith this week, this year, all the way to the finish? What will it look like for you to fight that good fight of faith as it pertains to your wealth and your possessions? Well, it will look like stewarding your wealth day by day in order to shrewdly prepare for the coming judgment. It'll look like managing your money and possessions with your eternal home clearly in view. Because of your faith in Jesus Christ, brother and sister, God is prepared to receive you into his eternal dwelling. A day is coming very soon when you will enter his courts unencumbered by sin and fully able to enjoy his presence. A day is coming when you will forever dwell in his house, Psalm 84, ever singing his praise. Think of it. You'll be with the Lord, face to face. He'll welcome you into your eternal home of rest. In John 14, Jesus said, Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you that I go to prepare a place. Would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again. And I'll take you to myself, that where I am, you may also be. Brothers and sisters, Jesus is preparing a place for you. He's getting your eternal dwelling ready. He's making preparations. He's tidying up for your arrival. I want you to get a vision for it. I I want you to dream a little bit about it. I want you to long for it. Because if you do, you'll sacrifice for it. You'll deprive yourself for it. You'll steward your worldly wealth in this life shrewdly. Do I have to remind you that this world is not your home? Don't you feel like a foreigner here, brother and sister? We are strangers and exiles on the earth in this present age. We're citizens of heaven, in the world, but not of it. We're we're just passing through. And this life is short, isn't it? It's a vapor, just, just a breath. I like to take our kids to cemeteries once in a while. I do. We go on a nice summer day or a nice fall day and and we just walk from grave to grave. And when we stop at one, I ask the kids questions about what they think the person was like or what he did or what she dreamed about. We take guesses based on what was written on their headstone. It's always a good reminder of where I'm heading. 
And I know I'll be there just in a blink of an eye. And I want my kids to understand from an early age that, that this life is very short-lived. It's temporary. This world, this age is short-lived and temporary. And there's so much more to live for. A home that will last forever. With a Savior who is infinitely valuable and delightful. A treasure beyond treasures. You know, Shannon and I were just remarking this past week at how, how fast time seems to go. It seems like just yesterday that I was in college and, and starting to do ministry. And now it's 25 years later and, and they just went by in a flash. That puts it in perspective, doesn't it? Some of you can look back on 50 years or, or 60 years or more and I bet you'd say the same thing. It's gone so fast. It's like a vapor, isn't it? It's like a breath. It goes fast. Don't you want to act in faith according to what's real and what's true? I do. So join me in the fight to believe that this life is brief and that the life to come is eternal and that in the resurrection we will be with Jesus and with his church forever and ever and that joy will be full and the reward will be worth it. All these delights will mark our home. This is the place that Jesus has gone, brother and sister, to prepare for us. And now let your shrewd stewardship flow from this wonderful vision of your eternal dwelling. And as you do, I think you'll find that your life is increasingly marked by generosity and sacrifice. Generosity and sacrifice for one another. Generosity and sacrifice for your brothers and sisters in the church. You'll love them by sharing your money and your possessions with them. Everything you own will be on loan to them. Need to use a car? Need a place to stay? Need this? Need that? Brother, what, what is mine is yours. Sister, what's mine is yours. You'll think creatively about how you can be generous. You'll strategize with your spouse about how you can give lavishly and you'll do wonderful things like purchasing Hannaford gift cards or gas cards and then giving them to families in the church that are in need. Or you'll find out who among us has medical bills or who just lost their job and you'll sacrifice so as to be a special blessing to them. You'll be strategic. You'll be coming up with ideas, ways you can be generous. Maybe you'll significantly increase your missions giving. Watching a video like that makes me want to, want to do that. Maybe you'll double your, your monthly gift to nets. If you're giving zero, don't double it. That's unhelpful. <laughs> but maybe you'll join for the first time. Maybe you'll increase your giving to the church substantially. Some of us probably need to break out of the 10% rut. Maybe some of us need to get to 10%. I don't know. But some of us need to get out of the 10% rut. Don't get stuck there. Some of us can get stuck there, myself included. And if my income goes up, I increase my giving, and the percentage just kind of stays the same. But think with me for a minute. If Jane, mythical figure, if Jane makes $40,000 a year and she gives 10%, that leaves her with $36,000 for her budget. And she gives $4,000 to the church. If John Doe makes $100,000 a year and he gives 10%, well, look at him. He's given $10,000. But that leaves him with $90,000 to live on. 
You kind of see what I'm poking at? John Doe could raise his giving to 20%. He could double his giving and he'd still be left with twice as much money as Jane. So it's easy in my mind to be like, hey, come on, John Doe, give 20%. Don't get stuck in the 10% rut. And then I think, maybe I'm John Doe. And what if you're John Doe? Do you think there's a possibility that stewarding your worldly wealth by faith means making some significant changes? Perhaps. I'm sure there's other practical ways that you can work to manage your wealth by faith. Let me encourage you, be shrewd. Leverage your current money and your current possessions by faith, looking to the eternal dwelling that awaits you. At the men's retreat, we sang the song, Christ is mine forevermore. And I loved hearing the men sing the final stanza of that song. And mine are keys to Zion City, where beside the king I walk. Imagine that. For there my heart has found its treasure. Christ is mine forevermore. We have the most wondrous treasure in Jesus Christ, don't we, church? And he's preparing eternal dwellings where we'll be with him forever. There's every reason to be generous and sacrificial as we fix our gaze on that home. We save and save and prepare and invest and save for the ability to purchase a house here on earth, a house that will crumble and fall apart in due time. Seems to me like it's worth giving and sacrificing and sacrificing and giving with our hopes set on our future house, our eternal home. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we are so grateful for the gift of grace that you have given us in Jesus Christ. Thank you for his death and his resurrection on our behalf. Thank you that we are invited to come to him by faith and to trust in him. And I pray that you'd help us to walk by faith and to live by faith and help us to be a church that that lives by faith with regard to how we steward our things and our money. I'm thankful that this church is marked as a church that does that. Help us to excel all the more and give us grace. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.